Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. It's good to be back, and we're glad you joined us today. Are we calling this season two? It must be season two. Yeah, that's right. Uh, season two, episode one or something <laughs> like that. No. There you go. Uh, if you've joined us thus far, we, we spent some time uh, in a series called What Does the Bible Say? Today we're doing something completely different. In fact, we're going we're gonna to take a venture into no man's land, to uncharted waters, so to speak, dangerous territory. Ooh, it sounds scary already. It is scary. And that, and that being, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about worship. I talked about that briefly in one of our previous episodes, but today I thought uh, maybe it would be good for us to explore some of the aspects of uh, worship that uh, maybe you've never thought about before. Maybe, uh, you know, it's a topic that I think everybody assumes they know something about, or people are very passionate about it. And so there can be uh, strong feelings one way or the other. And if you've paid attention to anything that's gone on within Christianity in the last, say, 30, 40 years, there's been more and more of what we call worship wars. Uh, there's this, there's a side that says, you know, the church is not bound to do anything, and therefore everything in worship is free, to, to, you're free to do whatever you want. And, uh, you know, they pit sort of contemporary stylings, contemporary praise music, uh, you know, praise bands, all of that stuff. Throw out the liturgy, write your own creedal statements and all that stuff. Uh, just have it very informal. And, of course, uh, the idea is that the younger generation really likes this, and therefore we should do it to get more people in church. And then you have the other side, which would be more of the traditional side, which would say, well, this is the way grandma did it and great-grandma, and therefore we should do it the same way, and we, should, we shouldn't even think about change. And our, our goal today is not necessarily to uh, jump in and settle that debate, because uh, obviously it continues to go on, and there's been way more uh, informed and intelligent people that have had this discussion than me, so I certainly don't claim to, uh, you know, here's the be-all, end-all of the worship wars. Here, here we're going to do it all in this, this uh, segment. Furthermore, it's a topic that's very broad and deserves more than one episode. But I thought, if nothing else today, if you've never thought about it, if you've never really, you know, given much time to this topic, maybe today we can at least raise some of the concerns. We can give you some food for thought, some things to think about, so that uh, when you are confronted with these types of issues, you can kind of be prepared, so to speak, to make your own judgments and to see what's good and proper and pleasing and all that. So I guess, you know, worship as a word is pretty broad. Now, I guess I would ask you, Lauren, what do you think most people would say or how do you think they would define that term worship? What, what comes to their mind in terms of worship? Well, I think um, for a lot of people, depending on which church they're part of, but I think for a lot of people, worship it tends to mean something they go and do for God. Yeah, and I think that's that's certainly uh, along the lines of the way I would think most people would define it as well. And there's a good reason. I think even scripturally, you have that idea where uh, I worship the Lord. You know, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So rightfully, there's that connotation, it's what I do for God in the form of prayer or praise or thanksgiving, something like that. Now, in terms of that, you'll often hear, at least in our circles, people say, well, worship 
is adiaphora. And it's just a fancy term that means it's neither commanded nor forbidden in terms of form in the New Testament. So whether you follow page 5 or 15 in the old hymnal, in our circles, again, <laughs> uh, people, our people would probably understand that, but uh, if you're outside of Lutheranism, that sounds pretty bizarre, I'm sure. Or the more modern settings and, and services and rites and so on. If you're going to say that it's adiaphora in the sense that it's neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture, uh, certainly the, the Bible doesn't say you must use page 5 or 15 or something like that. So on a technicality, that's true. But I think the, to say that the Bible doesn't say anything about worship is not true either. Certainly, the Old Testament is full of examples of God's prescriptions and commandments concerning uh, Old Testament worship, the sacrifices, even uh, you know the priesthood, uh, the vestments they were to wear, the setting in the temple, and how things were to be decorated, and all of that. So to say that God doesn't care and that it's all just you know completely subjective and up to us to decide, I don't think that's a very accurate portrayal of what the Bible says either. So we want to avoid, on the one hand, legalism, and we want to avoid, on the other hand, liberalism. So we don't want to, we don't want to take too many liberties, and we don't want to become too rigid in, in a certain sense, making commandments where God didn't command. However, worship in its broad sense uh, can even include everything that we do as Christians. Certainly, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, uh, present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your sort of reasonable act of worship to the Lord, holy and acceptable. So, uh, certainly, I would never argue the fact that every aspect of our lives as Christians is to be an act of worship. If you're a father, being a good father is an act of worship. You know, fulfilling your vocations, if it's a wife or a, a worker or a neighbor or a brother or sister, whatever it is, whatever vocation God has placed you in, uh, you worship him with your life by serving those he's placed into your life and obviously um, loving him above all things. So, I would never argue that point either. But when we talk about worship wars, we're, we're speaking more specifically about corporate worship. What does the church do when the church comes together? And so that's what we're going to explore a little bit today. And again, this is a very, uh, I don't want to say controversial topic, but it becomes very uh, personal for a lot of people. It's near and dear to their heart. And, you know, to, to, to look at anything and say, well, maybe this is not the best thing to do. People get very defensive and they take it as a personal attack on them and so on and so forth. So, we, we you know, the, the point of our discussion today is not to go there per se, but I do think that there are important aspects of worship that we need to consider as we approach this topic. So, uh, just to begin with, uh, we're going to take a look briefly at an interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. There's this conversation that goes on between Jesus and this woman, uh, who is a Samaritan and not a Jew, and uh, she says, Sir, I, see, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And then Jesus responds, and he says to her, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus speaks of worship, especially in the New Testament, as worship in spirit and truth. So we're going to use that as kind of a, a template to explore this topic today and maybe talk about how we can emphasize one to the detriment of the other and how that can be unhealthy and so on and so forth. So first of all, let's talk about worship in spirit. And I think most people hear that as a pretty subjective term. You know, I worship God in my way, you worship God in your way, God knows what's in my heart, and therefore you can't judge what I do. Uh, It's all, I'm free to worship God in my own sort of way. It's in my spirit, it's in my heart, or whatever it might be. And so I would say this is, uh, at least in the minds of most people, sort of the subjective side of things. It's, it's in my spirit that I worship God, therefore, uh, however I do that is acceptable to God. First, let's just say that according to the scriptures, as human beings, we were created for worship. We were created to give praise to our creator. Uh, we are created to give glory and thanksgiving to him for providing us with everything that we need for this body and life, and especially after the fall into sin uh, for the gift of redemption. So there's no doubt that as human beings, uh, we were created in a certain sense for this very purpose, that our, our lives would give glory to our creator, God. On the other hand, uh, we, w- we might agree that uh, me- worship is not simply a mechanical thing. It's not as if going through the proper motions and saying the proper words in and of itself is pleasing to God, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that would uh, certainly come out when Jesus is interacting uh, with the Jewish leaders, and he says, you know, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They were going through the outward motions of worship, but certainly they weren't uh, worshiping him in their heart, in their spirit, so to speak. So, you know, we would agree that mechanic, uh, mechanical worship is not really true worship. It's not just a matter of having the proper forms and proper words and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, so there's an element to that side that we would agree with. And we would also say that God is is not some sort of divine candy dispenser who is manipulated by us. You know, if we just uh, say the right words, we can get God to do our bidding. We can get him to unleash his blessings upon us, you know, like the prosperity preachers teach, you know. And I always say, well, God's not your genie in the bottle. And yet that's kind of the, the notion when we look at pagan worship, uh, the worship of false religions, very often... They, they think if you say the right words, the right incantations, or whatever it might be, you can manipulate the gods into doing your bidding. And really, uh, it kind of reverses the role. If God is sovereign, if God is your creator, uh, you worship him, it's not vice versa, where you know God is simply uh, the divine genie who waits for you to you know, rub the lamp and make your wishes, so yeah, to he's, speak. He's waiting for your input, and then he can do something. Right, yeah, as if he, he's powerless until you give him the green light or something right. like that. And that's that's a, certainly not uh, a perspective we want to come before God with. And yet I think in, in a certain sense, a lot of the worship out there, it, it kind of has that aspect where we come with selfish motives. I go to church because I need something from God in the terms of my personal life. You know, I could really use a better job. I I need to get my 
house in order, whatever it might be. And uh, if I go to church, maybe God will, will do those things for me or he'll give me those blessings. And I would say if that's your, your motivation, your motivation is not the first commandment. Your, your motivation is sort of uh, selfish in a certain sense. So obviously the first commandment says we are to love God above all things. We're to love him with all of our heart, our mind, soul, and strength. So it can never just be this sort of mechanical outward thing, uh, and nor can it be a self-centered thing where I'm only going because it makes me feel good, it makes me look good to my neighbors, or whatever it might be. So again, uh, we have to be on our guard that we don't fall into those legalistic ideas that, uh, you know, just merely going through the motions or being there, it, it automatically works the way we want it to work or something like that. On the other hand, uh, Jesus talks about worship in spirit and truth. So truth is the, the second part, and I would say this is the part that most often gets neglected. Uh, most people are, are perfectly content to say, well, uh, I worship God in my way, you worship him in your way, but it's all subjective, and, and as long as it, you know, it's sincere and it's in our heart, then God will accept it. Well, uh, there's a lot of things in our heart uh, that are not very uh, pleasing to God, you know, obviously the sinful intentions and motives. So when you say, well, God knows what's in my heart, yeah, yeah he does, but I, I, don't think that, I don't think that's as comforting as you think it is. I mean, uh, so the second aspect being uh, we worship God in truth. And this is the part that uh, I think modern Christianity really doesn't like to acknowledge, what does it mean to worship God in truth? I mean, how do you think most people hear that, or what you know? I, you know, I, I would, I think a lot of people don't even think about that aspect of it. It, it never really comes to mind. Or, or maybe they even think about it in a subjective sense too. Like your truth and my truth can be different, and truth is all relative. So, right. I, I've, I've heard God's word, and here's what I feel like he's saying to me. And this is my truth. But you, could, you, know, you might have a different idea, and that's your truth too. And that's okay, as if we can have multiple truths, and that's God-pleasing. It, it doesn't matter. Nothing, nothing really matters. It's just the end is all going to be the same anyway. So that, That's the, the prevailing... Uh, you know, all too many people have a wrong outlook on that kind of thing, so... So I'll pose this question, and uh, you know, for you or for our listeners or whatever, what would our words, our actions, our movements in worship look like if they're a reflection of truth? And, and that might look very different than the popular notions of worship out there, right? Sure. Uh, You're, you, instead of being based off and and work work around God's word and have that be the focus you're kind of off doing your own thing um you have your praise band or whatever and you're just singing your happy song and you're doing your own thing hanging out with your buddy Jesus on a Sunday morning and that's all good yeah i i think a lot of people uh emotions yeah, feelings. Feelings yeah. drive what they see as proper worship. Right. You know, this this service made me feel so uplifted. It made me feel so good in my heart. And I'm not saying that that in and of itself is is a bad thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've worshipped in truth. 
right? I mean, there's, right. A, there's a lot of things that make my heart feel good that are not good for me. You should feel good after a service, but not because... And, and that's not the primary focus of worship. So we're going to get to that aspect of it in a second. But I, but I think this is a, it's a kind of an unspoken goal that drives much of modern worship. How is it going to make me feel? Yeah. And if it doesn't make me feel a certain way, I don't like it. It's not good. It's, or we even, we even judge it's, it's spirit-filled or it's not spirit-filled based on how it makes me feel. So if we want to know whether a church is spirit-filled or the, the service is spirit-filled or not, uh, we judge it by how does it make me feel in my heart. In other words, we look inwardly to judge the, the liveliness or the, the life of the church or the message or whatever it might be. Sure. Um, now, what if I were to say that our words, actions, movements, and worship uh, should reflect, confess, and even embody truth? That might look very different, wouldn't it? Yeah. It, now, obviously, uh, you know, people automatically, when you have this kind of discussion, they say, well, are you saying we must do this, or we must use that prayer, or we must sing that hymn, or whatever it might be? And our goal today is not to to go there. the The point is not to set a line in the, in the sand, so to speak, and uh, you know make it all black and white. But to get us having this conversation, to get us thinking in terms of these things, so that we're at least a little bit more informed, or at least we've wrestled with the topic enough, where we're not hoodwinked, so to speak, by some of the popular forms or styles or whatever out there, which may not be, which may or may not be good for us or may or may not deliver the truth, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, just as a reminder, truth is, belongs to God. It's God's truth. And we see that truth in his teaching. It's drawn from the scriptures. So we don't get to skip over inconvenient or controversial truths. Uh, when we speak about sin, we, we only speak in terms of what God has called sin. We don't get to in, uh, invent our own standard or to conveniently overlook certain aspects of it. And uh, as, as we think about, uh, in terms of our worship services, we're going to talk about you know, a, a two-directional aspect of worship. There's certainly the aspect of us giving God our praise, prayer, and thanksgiving. But there's another aspect, and I, I would even argue even a more important aspect that people don't often pay attention to or overlook. And that's the aspect that God comes to us in worship through his word and through his sacraments. And this becomes uh, the primary movement in worship. And again, we'll talk about that in just a second. But first of all, uh, on this aspect of truth, again, we would be reminded that truth is not subjective. And if that's true, that there is an objective truth that God is revealed to us in the word, then there are elements of worship that can never be subjective. There's elements of the church's conduct in its order even that are never subjective. You know, you know for instance, we, we've talked about the ministry and the qualifications for those serving in the ministry, as St. Paul writes in 1 Timothy and, and other places. So we don't get to just decide, well, times have changed and we think that God would approve of this, or I just feel in my heart that God approves of this. Right. He, he never asks us that. And, and that's the other aspect that I was just going to bring up and you just said is it's unchanging. Right. Those, those truths don't change over time. And I would say that even uh, people today even want to pit 
this idea of spirit and truth against one another. They don't say it in those terms. They might say something along the lines of, uh, we focus on love. You can get caught up in, in all the doctrinal details. You can get caught up in all the semantics of uh, what's right and wrong in the Bible. We're just going to focus on loving people. And, uh, you know, we'll focus on deeds, not creeds. And that sounds nice. It sounds pious. It sounds religious. It sounds, you know, God is love and he wants us to love one another. But remember that biblical love is always love in truth as well, as, you know, St. Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 13. So we don't get to invent our own definition of what worship in the Spirit looks like. We don't get to invent our own definition of what love looks like either. So this this artificial pitting of love versus truth is really, um, it's a lie. I mean, you, you can't do it. How do you show God your love for him? Well, by abiding in his word. That's what Jesus himself would say. You know, you're truly, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in reality, you can't have one without the other, love and truth. And the other aspect of that is, you know, they talk about loving other people. Well, I just, we're just going to focus on loving other people as God would want us to. Well, that's fine. That's the second table of the law, right? You know, commandments four through ten. What about the first command, the first table of the law? Commandments one through three, which deal with our relationship with God. Uh, what does it mean to love God above all things? If, is loving God above all things overlooking what he says in his word? Isn't loving God precisely clinging to every word that he says? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you see that this, this pious-sounding you know, idea that people throw around as if it, it, you know, it trumps any discussion on the matter. You, mm-hmm. know? You, you guys can get all caught up and argue about the details of worship, but we're just going to focus on loving. Oh, you're so much—it's really a self-righteous statement. You know, I'm, so, I'm so much better than you are because I don't get caught up in details as if God would really be proud of me for not really caring about what his word says. But the first three commandments are a problem now. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and again, I'm not trying to put down people who, who have that idea. I, I, again, I think this is a topic that a lot of people haven't really wrestled with all the way through. And uh, again, by no means are we thinking, oh, this episode's going to be the be-all, end-all to this discussion. Uh, rather, uh, as one who's read these discussions online and looked at the worship wars topic over the years, uh, I just I just tend to notice that there's a lot of aspects of the discussion that are conveniently never brought up or never discussed. They're ignored, yeah. So that's that's the only goal today is to just get us thinking about some of these issues. And there's more. I mean, there's a lot more to be said for sure. Now, uh, again, when we think about truth— you could say that truth, and I've heard other people say this, truth is God's love language. You know, how do we know God's love for us? It's through the truth that he's revealed in the scriptures, that God sent his only son to be our savior, that he lived, died, and rose again in our place as our substitute, and because of Christ, God forgives our sins and uh, grants us new life, and eternal life with him in heaven. So doctrine— the very thing that people say we don't get caught up in that is the very means by which God delivers us, by which he saves us. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not our warm, fuzzy feelings, not our love for our neighbor, whatever it might be. It's God's love for us in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. And I think, uh, 
as we think about the topic of worship, you know, we can talk about what uh, hymnody or prayers or forms and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's important that we come back to this foundation that it is always to be derived from, embody, and confess the truth of God's Word. And to do that, we have to be familiar with God's Word, right? I've asked you this question, I think, in a different episode. But where did you learn how to talk, Lauren? Just copying back people or parents, probably. Right. Parents or grandparents. So your parents talked to you. And, you know, you didn't necessarily, you couldn't speak full sentences at first. You kind of put a few words together, a couple words together, a few words together. Maybe you were able to say a sentence then. But the language that you used, even the words that you chose, Mm-hmm. were words that somebody else spoke to you first. Right. You didn't just invent words. Maybe you did it as a child. Maybe make, we, make up as you go. We, yeah. we, we well, do a little bit of that too. You start out, but you can only make it so far that way. That's right. Nobody would understand you. Right. That, that's a problem. Yeah. So well, it could be a problem. Uh, you know, language serves that a, a ability to communicate uh, one's heart, one's emotions to the other, right? And it's the same thing with God. God communicates his love to us through his word. And so uh, we learn the language of the faith. We learn the language of prayer. We learn the language of worship and praise from the scriptures themselves. We learn as God has first spoken to us. So it's not surprising then uh, that the language of worship is a reflection of the language that God has first spoken to us. And I think that's another aspect that is often missed on Uh, modern Christianity and its emphasis on whatever's in my heart. You know, God doesn't care about the details. Uh, I just say what I feel, even if it doesn't mean anything and sounds like gibberish, even if it's just vague and it's just nice-sounding words, whatever it might be. Again, as Christians, we speak the language we've learned from our Heavenly Father, and that requires us to be informed and familiar with the Scriptures to uh, confess the truth that the scriptures speak. And also, our actions and words in worship should be a reflection of that truth as well. So that that has implications that I think are far-reaching. It's not just a subjective, here's what I feel like doing, and God loves it anyways. Well, you know, to a certain extent, we again, it's not a mechanical thing, so we don't disagree with certain elements of that argument. But on the other hand, do our words, actions, and conduct in worship reflect the truth that we believe, the truth that we teach, and the truth that we confess? So, now you'll often hear people say, well, you don't have to go to church to worship God. True or false? <laughs> and it's, a tr- it's a trick question. I'm putting Lauren on the spot here. True and false. Oh, he, he straddles the fence. He's yeah. taking the easy way out. I, I'd, I'd say true, but there is an asterisk there. Okay. So, yes, on a technicality, we'd say going to church doesn't make you a Christian automatically, right? I mean, there's plenty of hypocrites that go to church. However, uh, when we look at what the New Testament teaches about the church it talks about it being the body of Christ and the body made up of many different members, uh, each serving their own unique function. Each one person has their own gifts that are to be used for the benefit of others, for the benefit of all. There's order in the church, not all our prophets, not all our teachers, not all our pastors, uh, not all our preachers, those kind of things. So there's also this corporate aspect of, you know, where do we go to receive the Lord's Supper? 
where do we go to receive baptism? And we talked about that before, too, how uh, the pastors, the called ministers of the church, are stewards of the mysteries of God. Those are things we can't do at home. So there's certainly a, a communal aspect of the church life, and that you can already go all the way back to the Old Testament, um, you know, the assembly of the children of Israel, the congregation, those who have been called out, the ecclesia, the church, the congregation, whatever you want to call it. So there, there is a, a gathering together of the body of Christ. As the New Testament talks about, you know, we should not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. So on the other hand, you know, we'd say you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but I don't know where else you would go if you want to become a Christian. Right. right? It's there that God's word is preached. It's there that the sacraments are administered. Uh, it's there that God himself directs us to. So... I think a lot of people want to comfort themselves with the idea that says, well, I don't have to go to church. I can worship God out in the, out on the lake or out in the, the woods or, you know, at the mall or wherever I'm at, and I'm still a good Christian. I believe, you know, I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus or whatever. But what Jesus says, if you're truly my disciples, you'll abide in my word. Now, it's true, you can read your Bible at home. I, I mean, certainly you can and you should. I mean, there's, there's, there's value to doing that. But to neglect the very means that God has directed us to, his word and sacraments, uh, that is not a reflection of biblical truth. That's not a reflection of the understanding that God comes to us through these means uh, to bring us forgiveness, life, and salvation, which we desperately need every day. So it's, it's a false a statement that I think is intended to comfort the sinful conscience, but it puts a person in a dangerous place. If you never eat, you will wither and starve. You'll, you'll die. The th same thing is true spiritually. You can't stay away from God, his word, and his sacraments indefinitely and expect to be a believer. You might tell yourself you are, but God sees your heart, right? He knows. That, I don't know at what point faith dies and goes cold or leaves the building but at some point it does. Yeah, will, yeah. To live in uh, willful, intentional sin against God, same, same idea. You know, you can say, well, I still believe. Well, um, do you? I mean, I, the Bible says that, you, you know, you're in danger. And at what point faith leaves the building? I don't know. I can't say. I can't read people's hearts. So it's true. I can't judge somebody's heart. And you'll often hear people say, who are you to judge my heart? Well, I'm not judging hearts. Uh, I'm simply saying what the Bible says. So... There is a warning there, right? Now, uh, as Christians, we want to go to church, and here's where we're going to talk about maybe some of the uniqueness of the Lutheran understanding of worship. We go to church predominantly because it's there that God distributes his gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation through the gospel and word and sacrament. And as I examine my heart, as I look at my life, especially in light of the Ten Commandments, I realize I need those things. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those other things will be added to you. So what's the most important thing in my life? Well, receiving God's gifts where he gives them. And I've said this before, too. If Jesus were to say, I'm going to meet you Sunday morning down at whatever your local church is, at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, whatever your time your service is, what excuse do you think you could give him that would sound justified? Well, you know, I was tired and I just felt like sleeping in. Sorry, Jesus. Uh, you know, he says, well, I gave my life for you. I, I shed my blood for you on the cross. Yeah, I know, but I've been meaning to get around to it. But, you know, this is the only time I have to go shopping and I really needed to get some stuff done around the house. 
I met my friends last night. We went out and had a good time. It got so, late and, yeah. you know, there's always next week. And you'll, you'll be back again, right? Yeah. yeah. I'll catch you next time you're in town. Yeah, there but, you go. Uh, so, again, it sounds ludicrous, I know, but uh, think about that when we, when we make excuses for staying away from God's house. I, I kind of mentioned the idea of uh, God coming to us in worship. And so that's an element that we see, you know, th- throughout the scriptures. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word of God, to the breaking of bread, the sacrament, and to the prayers. So that's kind of the format that even our services to this day follow. Now, uh, we talked about worship as a reflection of truth. Well, we say that as we come into uh, God's house, as we hear his word and we receive his sacraments, we have come into the presence of God. Now, we, we would say God is everywhere present, and that's, that's true. But the bigger question is, where is God present for you? Where is he with his salvation? Where is he present with his forgiveness and life and salvation that Christ has won for you? And there, we say very specifically, the Bible tells us, He's present in his word of the gospel and in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So where, are, where do we find those things? Well, in the church. That's what he's commanded the church to do, to, to baptize all nations, to, to proclaim the truth that he's taught, to administer the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. So we want to be on the receiving end of that. And as we do that, we acknowledge we have come into the presence of the living God. Now, throughout the scriptures, we see that to come into the presence of the living God was uh, a, f- a very fearful thing for believers. Uh, we look at the Old Testament, even if you're in the presence of an angel, oh, it was, you know, people were afraid. Why? Because you've come into the presence of one who is holy. And as sinners, we know we're not holy. So what is the posture we would take in worship? Well, one of humility and acknowledging that uh, our unworthiness to be in God's presence, right? Uh, We think about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, the Pharisee stood up in his worship and really he worshiped himself. His prayers, oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. You know, I I fast twice a week. I give a a tithe of all that I have. And, you know, especially thank you that I'm not like that guy back there. Um, Whereas the tax collector beat his breast, wouldn't even look up uh, but simply said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. So we would say there's a certain aspect of worship that reflects this truth, that we've come into God's presence, and we would say that that reflection is usually what we would call reverence, respect. So worship should be reverential. And that's something that I think has been lost over the last, I don't know, 100 years, maybe less, uh, it used to be that you went to church, you dressed in your Sunday finest, not because God cares about your clothes, but it's a reflection, it's an acknowledgement that this is something different than the rest of the week. I'm not going to the coffee shop to hang out with my friends. I'm not going down to uh, you know the local bar or tavern or whatever. I'm coming into the presence of the living God. And so people would come into the sanctuary, they would, they would often... Uh, bow in meditation or prayer as they prepared for service, as they prepared to receive God's gifts, there was a reverence. Uh, even within the service, there were certain reverential acts. We, uh, I grew up in a church where there was kneelers. We would kneel when we prayed, or we stand when we pray, or we stand when we hear the gospel. All uh, 
you know, outward acts of reverence. You know, in and of itself doesn't make us true believers. No, not necessarily, because we could do all those things, you know, as hypocrites too. But the point is, is even what we do with our bodies and our postures and our that kind of thing is a reflection of this truth. We've come into the presence of the living God. Uh, does that mean we should come in, you know, yelling hi to everyone, giving high fives, smacking our gum with our hat on backwards? Uh, you know, those things would maybe not be as reverential. Again, I'm not saying that this is some sort of legalistic, legalistic command. Obviously, God would much rather have you in church than not there. But again, these are things that we would want to think about, right? Am I showing the proper respect or reverence for God who himself is present? So Lutheran worship uh, tr tries to convey that aspect of reverence. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that every aspect of, of every act of reverence that we see in any church or I mean, there's because there's reverent worship in other religions, I'm sure. So it doesn't mean in and of itself this means it's true and proper, right? It, that doesn't. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's one aspect of of our worship that we might want to think about. Now, the other aspect that I mentioned is this idea that in Luth in the Lutheran understanding, worship is primarily receptive. It's about us receiving God's gifts where and when he gives them. Whereas the rest of the world, or at least much of the Christian world today, tends to think of worship, kind of how we started this discussion, as something that we do for God predominantly. We as Lutherans, as confessional Lutherans, we would say predominantly worship is about God giving his gifts to us. And that's reflected uh, in, in a variety of ways in our services. First of all, our Lutheran fathers uh, called the, the service that we have on Sunday mornings not just a worship service. We can, we can call it a worship service. There's nothing wrong with that. But a more accurate title, they called it the Goddess Dienst, the divine service. Now, divine service has a twofold emphasis. You know, there's that one aspect that God comes to us and serves us with his gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And then in a secondary sense, there's our response of prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. So our service to God would be divine service as well. And that is even reflected in some of the architecture of our churches historically. I'm not saying that it has to be this way, but if you've ever wondered why is a church look the way it does, at least a Lutheran church, when we walk into our building, our, our pews all face forward. And again, it's not to say that you couldn't have your pews in some sort of other order, but they're all facing certain things. Now, what is the focal point as we look at the front of the church? Well, we see a baptismal font front and center. Ah, oh, well, that's the way we were brought into the church, through the waters of baptism, where God washed our sins away, where he connected us to Christ, where he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's God and his gifts to us. We see uh, a pulpit or a lectern and a pulpit. Uh, that's where the word is read in the pericopes that we've got for each Sunday. That's where the word is expounded upon as the pastor preaches on a given text. So there we see the focus on the centrality of God's word. Uh, even in the architecture, we see an altar. Obviously, uh, we don't teach that uh, we, there's a re-sacrificing of Christ that goes on in our services. We say that Christ is present himself with his sacrificial body and blood, especially in, with, and under the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. 
And uh, the, the altar is that table set in the wilderness for us, so to speak, where we receive that uh, medicine of our immortality, that food for the way in the form of uh, the Lord's Supper. So even visually, uh, there's this aspect of the receptive nature of worship emphasized in our churches. Now, right along with that, we would say that Lutheran worship is Christocentric. It centers on Christ and his salvific life, death, and resurrection, and the gifts that he's won for us. Obviously, again, forgiveness, life, and salvation. So everything that we do centers on him. Uh, as we come in, we confess our unworthiness to be in his presence. We plead for his forgiveness. We hear that forgiveness proclaimed to us in the words of absolution. Uh, throughout the service, there's this uh, back and forth with God where we acknowledge that aspect of who we are. And then we hear proclaimed to us over and over God's gracious acts, uh, his word of the law which condemns us, and the, his word of the gospel which brings us salvation. But it all centers on the person and work of Christ. So uh, even in our hymnody, it's always about what God has done for us. Now, that's not to say that there's not any subjective hymns that talk about me and my feelings. But uh, that my, me and my feelings doesn't really mean anything in terms of my salvation. What, me, what matters is what God has done for me in Christ. And so we proclaim that even in our hymnody. And I think if you were to do a comparison a cross-section, if you will, and compare uh, the classic Lutheran hymnody, even the ancient hymnody of the church versus modern praise music. Uh, and you were to say, let's, let's see how many times, see if the emphasis is on Christ or God and his gifts to us, or if it's on me and my response. I think you'll find a vast difference between the historic hymns of the church and the modern hymnody, which tends to focus on me and my feelings and my response to God. Uh, you know, someone has often uh, remarked that a lot of the modern praise music is so generic and vague that you could sing it to your boyfriend and girlfriend, just take out the name Jesus, and you could be singing it to your girlfriend and boyfriend, and it really wouldn't. There's not a lot of substance, you know. In, in our world where truth is constantly being eroded, do you think we need more substance or less substance? Do you think people need more uh, fluff, more, you know, candy? Or do you think they need more meat and potatoes, you know, something that's actually going to fill them up and make them stronger Christians? So, again, and, and obviously I have a bias here, and I'm not going I'm not, I'm not to pretend that I don't. Uh, and I'm not saying that all praise music is bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. But again, we're we're talking in broad terms, generic, broad strokes here. So I, I'm not trying to get into the nitty gritty and uh, you know draw a line in the sand and say you know, this is the only right way and everything else is wrong. But I think these are, are aspects of the discussion when we talk about worship wars that are that are neglected. They're just passed over. And it's, it's all free, and whatever I decide I like, that's got to be good for, enough for God, and he must really be happy with it too. Well, we're raising a whole generation of Christians uh, that uh, don't have very deep roots. They don't know their scriptures. They don't know the Bible. Uh, they're left basing their Christianity purely on emotions and feelings. They're focusing on themselves. On themselves. It's not Christocentric. So... And that, that also brings us to this next aspect, which is the confessional Lutheran Church's worship is both historic and traditional. 
uh, again, in the broadest sense. I don't want to get into this uh, you know, debate about traditional versus contemporary, because you know somebody will inevitably say, well, uh, those Lutheran hymns that were written at the time of the information, Reformation, those were contemporary hymns at that time. So you can't say everything contemporary is bad. And I, again, I'm not. I mean, there could be there could be modern hymn writers that are very talented and gifted. So in that aspect, I'm, I'm not arguing that. But what I am going to say is this. As Christians in any generation, as Christians in any place in the world, we have to recognize that we are only but a link in the chain. We stand on the shoulders of those who have confessed before us. In other words, we, we inherit what they've handed down to us. To a certain degree, we become a product of what they've given to us, for better or worse, right? I mean, if they've given us something subpar, uh, we might think this is good and proper and, and hold to it. It's all we know. Uh, right. And that's not good either. But inevitably, we are a link in the chain. Um, we're not... Uh, and, and we're going to pass what we have on down to the next generation. Are we leaving them with the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or have we rounded the edges? Have we taken something away? Have we not given them the full deposit? Have we failed to you know, uh, hand down the, the faith once delivered to the saints? Change the focus. Yeah, have we changed something? And you know, a lot of people today say, well, this is what the younger generation wants. But in just a generation or two, uh, would the Christians in 2050, would they be able to walk into our churches today and even recognize it as a Christian worship service? Or will if things change so much, have the, you know, even the teachings change so much that they would say, uh, that's just a relic of a bygone era. That's not, we've, we've improved. A, and it's sort of an arrogant notion that says, uh, we can improve upon what was given to us. We can make it better. And uh, my fear, at least in confessional Lutheran circles, is that these churches that have gone hook, line, and sinker and bought into the church growth movement, uh, applying business principles, marketing principles to the Christian world, that they've raised a whole generation of uh Christians or Lutherans, I'll say, that won't recognize confessional Lutheran in just a generation or two. Or if they have to leave and find another congregation when they move to a different city, they're less and less likely to find a confessional Lutheran church, traditional uh, Lutheran church, and they're going to probably go to the non-denominational church in town that has the contemporary worship, which obviously does it way better than us Lutherans do, because we're always 20, 30 years behind the curve anyways. And... uh, (laughs) Our, our, our right. praise bands are more the garage band version than the, the big full-scale stadium, you know, production. We don't have lights and uh, big sound systems yet. Yeah. We'll get there someday. No, we don't. We don't. Well, we don't want to, but <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> that's my, right. that's my perspective. Right. Anyways, uh, so again, we're not arrogant innovators who ignore the past as though we live in a vacuum. We are simply a link in the chain, and we preserve and hand down the faith once delivered to the saints. So in that sense, we would say the Confessional Lutheran Church is conservative. And by conservative, I'm not talking about a political ideology. I'm talking about an approach. We conserve everything that teaches and promotes the gospel, and which is not contrary to the Word of God. When we look at Luther's reforms of the liturgy, uh, he was not an innovator. He took 
everything that was handed down to him in the forms of the historic liturgy, the rites, the orders of service, he simply removed some of the works righteous aspects of it. Uh, if he was an innovator, it was in this sense that he put the, the service into the common language of the people. Uh, he had more lay involvement. There was more congregational singing uh, and responses in the liturgy. All of these things are wonderful. But if somebody were to walk in to Luther's service uh, after the Reformation, they would still recognize it as the traditional service that had been in, in the church since the earliest centuries. So, again, Luther was not an innovator per se necessarily in, in worship. He was a conservative. And, uh, you know, the traditional architecture, art, uh, hymns, a lot of these things he just kept, I mean, because they weren't contrary to the Word of God. And he also recognized that the rites and ceremonies of the church serve an important purpose, and that is in teaching, in proclaiming, and inculcating that truth of the gospel to the next generation. In contrast to some of the radical reformers like Zwingli and Calvin, who simply said, if it's not in the Bible, we're going to throw it out. So you couldn't have organs, you couldn't have art, you couldn't have all of those things. And uh, even hymnody, to a certain extent, was just paraphrases of psalms or psalms. We're not radicals. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, we, we recognize that the church in her wisdom in generations past was not ignorant of these truths. It's not that they hadn't thought about these things either. So we don't just say, well, uh, we don't care what they did. We know so much better, and it's really subjective. It's all what I feel in my heart anyways. Therefore, uh, I don't care what they've done. I'm going to throw it all out, and I'm going to reinvent the wheel and do it my own way. Uh, that's a dangerous place to be. And Well, and doesn't, that really doesn't make a lot of sense when you're worshiping a God that doesn't change. Right. And yet you want to change things to worship a God that doesn't change because you found a better way to do it. Right. So— uh, I would say confessional Lutheranism is liturgical, and by that, uh, I'm just talking about the the form of the service, the rite of the service. Um, you know, there's an order to the service that we didn't invent. It goes back to the earliest centuries of the church. In many ways, it even goes back to the Old Testament, to the synagogue worship. We look at, uh, you know, there was an order where there was readings and uh, exposition and psalmody and all that kind of thing. So. Uh, we're not innovators and, and constantly changing. We recognize uh, what's been done before us and its wisdom, its beneficial aspects. If it's been obscured or um, tampered in such a way that it, it uh, you know, hides the gospel or something, you know, that's not good or in line with Scripture, certainly we want to remove it. So we don't say you can't change anything. But in changing, I would say we'd have to look at our motive. Why are we changing this? And is it really a change for the better? You know, and very often you hear this with modernizing languages. There's always new translations of the Bible. We need to modernize this. We need to take out gender-specific language. Well, if God gave us gender-specific language in the scriptures, there's probably a good reason. Even if you don't understand what it is, right. you don't know that you're trying to smooth things over is actually helping anybody. You might actually be obscuring a passage which, you know— uh, points to Christ or something like that in the Psalms. Again, it's, it's not a matter of we must do things this way. Um, and some people say, well, can't we just do what's in our hearts? Well, that, that question, can't we just do what's in our hearts? Uh, you know, you can read your Bible, read your Old Testament, and you'll see that was kind of the downfall of the Israelites. 
the Israelites noticed what the Canaanites were doing around them. And they said, hey, you know, we can, we worship God, but maybe we should mix it with a little bit of that. That looks like it might be good too. And, uh, you know, and so it ends up being their downfall, it leads them to idolatry. Not to say that you can't, you know, changing any little thing is going to lead to idolatry, but I'm just saying we should approach these matters conservatively and not in a legalistic matter uh, either of we must use this or that. There's actually quite a bit of variety built into the historic services of the church. I mean, there's plenty that changes from week to week, the readings, the prayers, the colics, uh, the introit and uh, prefaces and so on. So, uh, but we should evaluate all of these things by asking what best confesses, proclaims, and embodies the truth of God. So, you know, we started this by saying, uh, a lot of people will say, worship is all adiaphora. Okay. But even if that's true, even if we acknowledge that it's true in the sense that it's neither commanded nor forbidden in the scripture in terms of a specific rite or, or order of service, uh, I think there's enough principles and um, passages which talk about the worship of God that we can evaluate these things. And when we recognize that worship is always an embodiment of the truth that we confess and we believe, then we can uh, look at practices, we can look at hymnody, we can look at prayers, we can look at uh, creedal statements, and we can evaluate them and say, how well does this articulate the truth? And this thing that we want to change it to, does it do better? Is it better? Is it a better articulation, an embodiment of that truth, or is it not as good? And in that sense, why would you why would you want to give your people less than the best? If you know that this is better at doing those things, why would you want to give them less? So I don't say that the church must only and can only use page 5 or 15, the old TLH, uh, the Lutheran hymnal, but I will say that the the historic service there, the common service as it's been handed down to us through the centuries of the church, uh, does those things which we want. It embodies the truth of the gospel. It confesses the truth of the gospel, um, you know, and it teaches those things. And if we're going to change to something, we would have to say, does it do a better job of doing those things? And if not, why are we going to it? And again, it's not a matter of we can't use anything else. I would say if you can show me an order of service, a way of worship that is better at articulating the gospel, uh, of embodying the gospel, and, and remember, uh, what does the Christian faith look like? Well, we can talk about what it looks like in our individual lives, but in some ways, when we come together as the church, what we do there is the embodiment of the confession that we make in our words, our actions, and our conduct. Uh, we, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We are there to receive God's gifts. All of these things are a reflection of biblical truth. They're putting our faith into practice. So when we're going to change things, does it reflect those things? Does it really embody those things? Does it do a better job than those forms that have been handed down to us? Right. Or does it just make us feel better? Or Yeah, right. So if, if not, then we, we need to ask ourselves, why are we doing this? If we're, moving, if we're moving away from the truth just to make ourselves feel better and, and make the focus on us, then why? Why are you doing that? Yeah. And I, I've seen a lot of uh, churches in confessional Lutheran church it circles that have, um, you know, really bought hook, line, and sinker into this, this idea that the church growth movement promotes. And that's this idea that 
uh, we we need to give the people whatever they want. It's like in the business right. world, the customer is always right, and so you give the customer whatever they want. Well, sinful people want sinful things. They may not even think it's sinful. They may not even they might couch it in religious terms. Well, uh, this is my pious expression. This is the way I worship God. And if you give people what they want, it's not necessarily giving them what they need. So we want to be careful. And again, uh, we don't want to fall into legalism, but uh, I think we need to evaluate all of these things from the perspective of the faith we believe, teach, and confess. So uh, we say Lutheran worship is confessional. We confess by what we say and do and proclaim in spirit and truth. Uh, I already mentioned that it is communal. The church is the body of Christ or congregational. We need each other. Others need us. Each part serves a function in the whole of the body. Now, going back to where we started this discussion, what about praise? Can't I just worship God in my own way? And uh, the short answer to that question is no. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, uh, in my own way. I might just say, well, I worship the, tri- I worship the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who is sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Spirit. And that's my way of worshiping him. You say, well, that's heresy. That's a heresy called modalism. It, God is three distinct persons in one, in one God. It's, you, you don't get to worship God however you feel or whatever your heart thinks or whatever your mind tells you, you, you think about it. So, you know, just that's just kind of an illustration to show you that we don't get to just invent things and therefore it's good, right, and salutary. I mean, and to say, well, I've heard people say, well, don't you just allow the Spirit to lead you into all truth? And I say, yes, in the scriptures. Not in my heart, which can deceive me, because the heart is deceitful above all things, but uh, our understanding, our language of worship, our... Um, all of these things that we've talked about today are formed and even normed. They're checked, if you will, by what the Bible tells us. And it's not a legalistic document that says, you know, it has to be this way, this way, but there is enough there that's said about worship that I think, uh, you know, we we can recognize the worship of the New Testament, the worship that God desires, the worship in spirit and truth versus some of these man-made perversions right. of and that. It all comes down to that that old, in the beginning we were talking about, is it something we do for God or is it something God does for us? Right. Where's the focus? What is what is the direction in, uh, in our worship? And I, I think I mentioned that the Lutheran Church is sacramental, but obviously I've mentioned that before too, where sacramental being the direction from God to us. He works through means. He, he comes to us through means, and it's around those means, the word and sacraments, that we gather. In much of the Christian world, they don't confess that. They might talk about the importance of God's word, but they say, God comes to me in my heart, so I'm left looking inwardly. Everything, every interaction with God is all found in my heart. How do I know God's love? Because my heart tells me so. How do I, you know, I'm saved? Because my heart tells me so. And uh, we would say in the Lutheran Church, it's very different. We look to those external means that God comes to us through the Word. That's how I know. That's how my faith can rest, certainly. And uh, that sacramental aspect of God coming to us is the primary aspect of our worship services. So again, this discussion was not intended to be the be-all, end-all. It's certainly not uh, trying to judge hearts or anything like that, but I think 
you know, if there's any contribution that we want to make to this discussion in terms of worship and worship wars and the different styles out there, is there are certainly aspects and matters that we want to think about, we want to wrestle with before we start diving into the uncharted waters that so often is contemporary worship and, uh, you know, the feel-good, uh, shallow, emotional-driven uh, type thing that is so popular out there today. So, uh, again, this is just a beginning. Uh, it's hopefully a furthering of the discussion, but we don't claim to uh, have all the answers or to have, you know, put, put to bed this whole issue because it's ongoing. And as I said at the outset, there are people that are way smarter than me that have talked about this and debated it and gone round and round and round. I invite you to go and read those things for yourself as well. Um, but hopefully it's just given you some food for thought. So on behalf of Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sorry. And I'm Warren Thompson. We hope you'll join us next time.